It's the last uh, four verses of uh, Romans 5 that we're looking at tonight. Romans 5, verses 18 to 21. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the obedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, he's been contrasting two men, two historic characters, Adam and Christ. And he's been pointing out until this juncture how unlike Adam is the Lord Jesus, how much more righteous, how much more blessed is Christ and all who are joined to him, what blessings they all have if they are in him, and so on. But now in this text, which I've just read to you, he changes his emphasis from contrasting the two men to comparing them. Just as the consequences of Adam's life were to affect all who were joined to him, so also the result of Jesus' life had the most breathtaking consequences for all who were joined to him. The contrast is there. The comparison is in the text. There are the two pairs of words, just as, and so also. And they're repeated three times in verses 18 and 19 and 21. If you are in Adam, there are consequences of being in that relationship. If you are in Christ, then you have something else entirely. And so we're going to look at four couplets. One and two, three and four, five and six, seven and eight. So uh, we look at the first of these eight in, in verse 18. There was one great act of defiance in Adam. That's how he starts in, in verse 18. God gesturing to him. They, nothing between them. Father and son, like that. God and Adam. And he sees all the trees. Look at them. Aren't they beautiful? Beautiful to see the fruit so delicious to taste. He said to Adam and Eve, help yourselves. Any of the trees, every one of them. It's just one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't take from it. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. You'll die if you do so. It was the simplest instruction then. They were simple people, weren't they? They had no history behind them at all. All they had as a philosophy of life... Uh, a world and life view was what he had told them. And he'd always been true so far in everything he said. So was Adam going to glorify and honor God 
by everything he did? Listening and doing what God said? Or was he going to please himself? And a serpent came on the scene. And that should have been the strangest of facts. That he was there. And uh, he spoke. And encouraged by the temptation of that serpent, our first parents took from the tree and ate it against the clearest prohibition of God. They sinned. Death remorselessly came upon them. And upon all men who are the children of Adam. The moment we're born and we cry our first cry, we begin to die. We're heading for death. It's utterly unavoidable. Because as the New England primer started with the letter A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Paul says in our text, as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. Let me illustrate it by comparing Adam to the horrific, horrible man, Jim Jones. Remember Jim Jones? So he led a thousand people out to Guyana. Guyana is one of the West Indian countries which is uh, on the mainland, uh, the north of South America, and uh, to a place he christened Jonestown, and a commune he called the, the People's Temple. And uh, those men and women were all joined to him. They'd have walked through fire for him. They were all under his control. And on one evil, evil day, November the 18th, 1978, 913 of them, including hundreds of children, killed themselves as he persuaded them to drink a mixture of cyanide and fruit juice. One liar responsible in one climatic action of selfish defiance of all that is tender and wise and patient and caring and loving. And as a result, all who were under him, this wretched Jim Jones, all who were joined to him and looked on him as a sort of messianic figure, they did what he told them to do, and they were condemned then to the inevitable death. None escaped. All died. It was then a parallel, a parable, to what Adam, our federal head and representative, did. The condemnation of his initiative came upon all who were united to him. That's the first half of this first couplet. The second half of it, point two, there was one great act of righteousness in Christ. So, verse 18, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. How different was this action than this Jesus? How different from Adam? How different from Muhammad? This last Adam. And uh, he came, he didn't come into paradise. He pitched his tent in our dark, grieving, dying world. 
He didn't take a group of his followers away and go to a commune by the Dead Sea and call himself um, the teacher of righteousness and live a separate life and not mix at all. He mixed. He lived in Nazareth, shared a bedroom with his brothers and shared meals with a family, helped his father to make gates and plows and ran errands for people, for his mother, mixed for 30 years in a village there where people swore and cursed and ignored God and didn't keep the Sabbath. There he was. There were even demons then who possessed many people in Jesus' day and they came right up to him in that wild look and appearance and cried to him for help. It was a time of unique satanic activity. There's been nothing like it ever since. And here in our valley of darkness, the Savior came and he loved God. Every morning, every afternoon, every evening, through the hours of sleep, he loved God. Loved God with all his heart. No sins of omission. No sins of commission. He loved sinners as himself. He went about doing good to the elderly and the poor and rich, to Gentile and Jew. He kept the moral law. He kept the ceremonial law. He kept the civil law. Paid his taxes. He had no sins of imagination. He had no sins of emotion. And yet he wasn't some sort of two-dimensional, cardboard, cut-out figure of a saint. He suffered. He grew weary. He breathed affection and self-denial and loving concern. He was God's great definition of what a man is. He's the archetypal man. He's the proper man, Luther says. And he fulfilled all righteousness as, as a real human being in the strain and stress of a world where there's death and illness and pain. He was beautiful. (laughs) So beautiful in his life. So wise. So righteous. So good. It was in divine righteousness and so it was infinite and eternal. That righteousness. It could cover every galaxy and nebulae and every molecule. And yet it was a human righteousness. It was worked out and weaved in all the contexts of the Ten Commandments and their bearing on how he related to people around him. And all who were joined to him, like people were joined to Jim Jones and it came condemnation for them and death for them, all who were joined to Jesus Christ. And joined to that life in Nazareth. That home in Nazareth. And joined to him in Gethsemane. They joined to him in Golgotha. They joined to him in the sufferings that men inflicted upon him. And we are justified by that righteousness of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we receive... The life of heaven. We receive it now. It's the heavenly life, isn't it? 
God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have the life of heaven in us now. And so there's patience and love and joy and peace and so on in us now. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Justification, Paul says in our text, that brings life to all men. And that is, they receive God's abundant provision. Verse 17. That's the Christian life. It's receiving from God his super abundant his illimitable God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory his abundant provision he gives and gives and gives to all his people and it comes through our Lord Jesus Christ well now I got to ask you have you all received this righteousness have you ever realized that uh, you don't do a single thing to be justified that condemnation for being what you are is the inheritance that you've received from your father Adam. But to believe in Jesus Christ is to believe into eternal life personally, consciously, submissively, helped by the Holy Spirit. Of course, you receive the provision of God to enjoy this life and all the blessings of justification. Why, why aren't you all taking this gift that God has brought you here tonight to hear about? And he's offering you not just my words, but he's offering you his gift, his son, his spirit, his eternal life. Don't wait till you're better. Don't wait until you feel more worthy of receiving it. You may be the worthiest you'll ever be tonight. Don't be snared by the tingle factor that you have to have feelings running up and down your spine in order to have a witness to you that you are favored and have a warrant to take Jesus as your savior. Jesus Christ says, you come to me. You just come as you are. You come to me, and I will give you rest. Well, I was reading this week uh, the testimony of a man from Poland. We don't have Poles in our congregation. We had it for a while, didn't we? I don't know. You'll tell me afterwards. I'm from Poland. Right. Good. Then you'll find this particularly interesting. It's the testimony of a man called David Koziol. And uh, he had, you know, the religious activity and life that there is in, in Poland, mainly Roman Catholic. And uh, then he heard in his restlessness and his longings, he heard a sermon online. And it greatly convicted him. This is what he wrote. I started to read the scriptures and to listen to sermons. God gave me a knowledge of sin. And I saw sin in my own life. I saw its ugliness. Before that, I thought my life was good. But in the face of truths, I came to understand, I saw that I was spiritually dead. And in fact, I'd never known God. 
I saw clearly that to live a more moral life didn't make me any more acceptable before God. There's no middle way. You're either with the Lord or against him. You are either in Adam or in Christ. And the words that I heard and read convinced me that to receive Christ meant to receive him into every part of my life. Not just one selected area or another selected area, but every part. It became clear to me that I couldn't confess Christ as Lord and go on living carelessly and defiantly. Will I have more falls into sin? Oh, yes. While I'm in the body in this fallen world. But am I willing to sin deliberately and then shrug after knowing my Savior and Lord and aware of what he did for me? I came to learn that my salvation wasn't based on my personal efforts. Salvation is quite apart from me. If salvation depended on me and my works, that would be a straight road to hell. But the beauty of the gospel and its truth is that Jesus Christ accomplished everything for my salvation. He loved me ere I knew him. When I was deep in my sins and unconscious of his person and work, even then, he loved me. Before the foundation of the world, he loved me. I was a religious person, but as a Catholic, I didn't know the grace of God and that Christ's salvation was free. I came to know these verses from these truths, some clear verses in the Bible, and it all became increasingly clear to me. After years of struggling to meet God's standards, after striving for some extra spiritual status, it was God who had put me in Christ. God justified me. God clothed me with the righteousness of Christ. God did it all, and he gives it all freely to sinners who will receive him. As an act of his grace, the Lord Jesus paid the price of it all there on Calvary's cross. And he calls all sinners, come, come now and have life. Instead of the death that you are experiencing, come and have my life. He became the Lamb of God and shed his blood for a sinner like me. Well, may that love motivate me to live for him. To him be the glory. Okay. That's what he wrote. Wasn't that good? Wasn't that helpful? Wasn't that clear? Wasn't it from his heart? It's, it's this sort of thinking in your mind and in your heart. So those are, that's the first two couplets then. The second two, firstly, this is point three on your outline. There was one climatic act of disobedience in Adam. Verse 19, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Well, you see, it can be under the covenant of works in, in Eden. It can be in Aberystwyth, under the free offer of the gospel in, in 2015. Everyone, whether in Eden or whether in Aberystwyth, we're all confronted with, with one great challenge 
Are we going to obey God or not? To Adam, the Lord said, don't take the fruit. To people today, he says, turn from your unbelief and entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus for salvation. The response is is not one that depends on, well, if I have more evidence, or if I have more deeper conviction in my heart, or if I search every religion, first of all, everywhere in the world, and see what they have to say. That's not the issue. The issue is you have been confronted with truth tonight, divine truth, truth that comes from God. And so the issue is, are you going to obey the truth? Or are you going to disobey it? Paul tells us that our father's Adam's sin resulted in the whole world being made sinners. All the world lies guilty before God. We're in that state. So this unique man, this man, oh, Adam, why did you do that? My federal head, my father, he committed this sin and enormous trouble and shame has come to the entire world. Look at every society. Look at the most primitive people in South Sea Islands, in places of Papua New Guinea, Aborigines in Australia. Look at them. Look throughout history. Look how every society is mangled and defiant and the lot of children and women and animals so awful in all of them you say okay I see that and for me that is proof of that in Adam all die but you say to me why didn't God give Adam another chance why didn't God say to him, oh, perhaps you didn't understand when I said to you, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Perhaps you didn't understand it. Let's try it again. Wasn't it a harsh punishment for a simple mistake? And we'd have done that. We'd think like that, wouldn't we? We'd have given Adam second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth and a hundred chances. Wouldn't we? It wouldn't matter how many chances Adam had. He'd have sinned anyway. Adam had become a serial rebel with a spirit of defiance in his heart. And by judging him after one sin, then God set up all the machinery of of redemption, he announced there. Seed of the woman's going to come. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Deliverance and salvation and life are going to come through him into this groaning world. It's going to happen. It really will happen. Through the death of my dear son, Jesus Christ. So these are the two options set before us then. That we are either going to be made sinners through Adam, or made righteous, through their last Adam, through Jesus Christ. So, every one of us tonight here, there's a line through this congregation, on one side of the line are all who are in Adam, and on the other side, all who are in Christ. 
And then we find the contrasting statement then, and it's number four, it's the second answer in the second couplet. It was one climactic act of obedience in Christ. He puts it like this, verse 19, so also, there it is, you see, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Through the obedience of one man. All of us in Christ tonight are righteous. That's what he says. Was that fair? Was it fair that King David, the adulterer and murderer, to be fully pardoned and clothed in the righteousness of Christ and to have been in heaven? Was it fair that in a moment all his sins were forgiven? Complete pardon, total exoneration of that ton of guilt. Was that fair? Was it fair for Jesus Christ, the blameless, lovely, beautiful Son of God, to be punished that way, hanging from a cross, his body resting on the nails through his hands and feet, so that we creeps, and we hypocrites and we proud little men and women should be pardoned. Was that fair? We pardoned and he punished? Not fair. It's true. It's glorious. He was obedient even unto the death of the cross. And we have been clothed with his glorious robe of righteousness. Let me illustrate in this way, tell you a story, wake you up now. Okay, story time now. And here is a criminal um, been on death row in an American jail for many years. And finally all his uh, lawyer's appeals were exhausted. And the date of his execution was announced. And the man had become wiser during his long time of incarceration. And he volunteered then. What could he do now? Well, he could give organs of his body. He, he could give his, the cornea of one of his eyes so that a blind person could see. And the doctors then uh, agreed to this and looked at it and it was fine. And they chose a recipient. And actually the person was brought to the prison to meet him and, and talk to him, the condemned man. There was a lot of human interest in the story and the newspapers spread about and uh, the transplant doctors emphasized it to encourage other people to sign donor cards. Eventually the day came and he was executed and then his cornea was removed and it was successfully transplanted into the eye of this man who'd been blind. He was very successful. He could see as he'd not been able to see for many decades. Now my little poser then. My theoretical poser. Um, you'd say it's a bit far-fetched. But it'll serve my purpose tonight. What if a policeman then. Arrested that man. And hoped for a, a guilty verdict. Because he had in his body. The cornea. Of a murderer. A zealous policeman, but he, there's a part of a murderer who's been condemned to death in him. Well, if the case 
if it ever went to court, it would be thrown out immediately, wouldn't it? Because the cornea, which once had been a part of the body of a murderer, was now in the the body of a non-murderer. His eyes had the property and the status of this body into which he he was grafted into. He, he, they, they were a part of a, a new man, weren't they? The man was blameless of any offense. And each part of his body was blameless. And I'm saying something like this has happened in justification. You were born in Adam and corrupted through Adam and made a sinner through Adam, but the moment you entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, you were transplanted from Adam to Christ. Whereas once you were as guilty as old Adam, now you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. And that is why you stand before God uncondemned. Whatever is true of Jesus, believe me, whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. Because God sees you in Christ his Son. Through the obedience of one man, many were made righteous. Okay, so that's the second couplet. Now we come to the third couplet. Couplet. Point five. The law was added into this mix then of man fallen in in Adam, the law was added that the trespass might increase. Verse 20. Okay, this, I find this very interesting, so a little, let me come along with me then as we examine this uh, fascinating phrase. Paul is just giving us one of the reasons why God gave the Ten Commandments. Just one of the reasons. He's not saying more right now. He's going to say more. Chapter 7, he's going to say more of the purpose of the law. But here he's telling us one of the reasons for it. And one of the reasons God gave to Moses the tablets of stone, which he brought down and read to the people and read to us, was uh, to convict us of our sin. And convince us that our status is that we are sinners. Paul is saying it's, it's vital that these, this Roman congregation then might understand this. And so it is vital that an Alfred Place congregation might also understand it. This is what you were to understand tonight. The Ten Commandments are not your saviour. Indeed, the presence of the law exacerbates our predicament. God's great solution to Adam's fall was not Moses. It was Jesus Christ, his son. And so Paul wants you to understand that the law was never given to be your savior. The purpose of the law, not exclusively, But Paul explains it here now. The purpose of law is to increase sin. So you're perplexed and you say, now what do you mean? What do you mean, Paul? Are you saying that 
God gave the law that my sins might increase, that there may be more sin in me? Are you saying God caused my sin to increase by giving the law? Well, the answer, of course, is no. But if the answer is no, then you've got to ask, what in the world are you saying that the law came in that transgression might increase? Well, I'm going to give you four Ps. I'm not an alliterated man, but uh, tonight I'm going to give you four Ps to explain to you the purpose of the law of God. And uh, that might help you to remember them. Paul's first answer is polemic. In other words, it's argumentative. It's in your face. The first thing I want you to see is that this phrase, the law came in that sin would increase, is deliberately designed by Paul to put your hackles up. What's he talking about? It's designed to cause maximal offense to a congregation who reads these words. He wants everyone listening to prick up their ears and look at one another, husbands and wives, and squeeze your hands together and, and furrow your brows and shake your heads. Paul is writing this letter to people whose forefathers were taken off to Babylon. And in Babylon they were kept for 70 years as a judgment on them for their constant disobedience to his law. They had other gods before him and they committed all the sins of the Ten Commandments. That changed them. That had an enormous impact. Coming back they were different people. Idolatry was never the same. It never had the same hold on them. They were never chasing after the Baals so much after the return from from Babylon. They were serious about the law. They boasted now in the law. The one thing that stood out for them amongst uh, all the different tribes and nations in the Roman Empire, they had the law. So the apostle says, why? Why did God give you the law? That you could stand out Stick your chests out and brag about your keeping of the law. No, he gave you the law that your sin and your guilt would increase. You couldn't have said something that was more offensive to people who felt they were so righteous as to say those words to them. Paul is really shaking the mosaic tree and the fruit is thudding down in anger all around him. He wants them to be shocked. He wants them to recalibrate. He wants them to reframe. He wants them to look at themselves and at Je- Jehovah in a very different way from the way they've been looking. Not proud that they've got the law, but trembling because of what the law is saying to them. The law was not their instrument of salvation. In fact, he says, the law came in that the trespass might increase, that you might see. Wow, it's that. Love God with all my heart. Love my neighbor as I love myself. That. Paul is shocking them. Well, tell us more. My first point, the first P then, it was, the law was polemic. What Paul says next about the law is partial. It's a selected 
comment. He's not exhausting the subject. This isn't in this one verse and this one phrase a comprehensive statement of why we have Ten Commandments from God. He's going to take it up, as I say, in Romans 7. And he's going to say more about it. And he'll say more about it to Timothy and so on. He'll talk about it later on. But it's important for you to understand that this is not all that the law is. And about its purpose and how it relates to avarice with Christians in 2015. What Paul is saying here about the law is important. It's essential to understand one of the uses of the law of God. But it's partial. It's polemic and it's partial. Third P then, what Paul says about the law is pedagogical. Ah, right, that's a big word. He's telling us, in other words, that the law was given to teach us something. It's a pedagogue. What exactly is it going to teach us? Well, it's going to teach us what sin is. It serves to expose sin. It's going to show us our hearts and our consciences and our affections. And that's one of the functions of the law of God. The old reformed theologians refer to it as the second use of the law. It drives us to Christ. James speaks of the law. Remember what James says about the law? The law, he says, the law is a mirror. So I'm holding up to you a mirror when I preach on the law of God. I'm holding to you a mirror. I'm showing you yourself in the light of the law of God. Not a pretty picture of what I'm showing you. It's early morning and you're out of bed and you've been to the bathroom and you've looked in the mirror and you see, oh, your hair is all over the place. And uh, you're unprepared. You're raw. You're not ready for the day. You have to wash and clean yourself up and dress tidily. And The law does that. The law shows you your sin. You need grace. You need the mercy of God. It leads you then to a saviour. The Greek word pedagogue, uh, we often use the word teacher. It's a teacher to lead us to Christ. Uh, It referred to the slave whose task it was to hold the child's hand when there are all sorts of evil men around in Rome and Corinth and take the children safely to the school. He led them to to the teacher, the school teacher. The law takes us to a The one who said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My burden is easy, my yoke is light, the other way around. And uh, so the law takes us then. I can't be saved by keeping the law, by being a good man. The law just exposes my sin. I need Jesus Christ. So the law is not designed to be our saviour. It leads us to run to the Savior. The law apart from the Savior just exacerbates our predicament. But when you, when you know the law right, oh, you're glad of the law. There's a scene, you know this story. It's by Victor Hugo, and it's called The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I'm not talking now about the cartoon by Disney or a musical version of it. I'm talking about the book. Quasimodo, the hunchback, has taken captive this beautiful girl, 
and she's there she sees him and she's crying and Quasimodo says to her why are you crying she says well you are crying yes I'm crying he said she said well let me ask you why are you crying and he says I never knew how ugly I was until I saw you And men and women, that's the law. You Christians didn't know how ugly you were until you went through those Ten Commandments. And you realized just how deformed you were in comparison to the beautiful righteousness that's revealed there. You learned you were in a mess. And so Paul is saying that the law had a distinctive role in God's purposes of mankind. He's going to tell us that um, before, before Mo- Moses came and, uh, and, and gave us the Ten Commandments, men and women weren't living in a, a, a morally illiterate world. It wasn't a relativistic ethical universe before Sinai because from the time Adam fell men knew men had a conscience God had made them in this way unlike the animals when Cain uh, murdered his brother Abel all the scores of brothers and sisters that, uh, that they had were shocked they all knew it was wrong to murder to take the life of your brother when Abram went up to Egypt and told the, the king of Egypt that Sarah was his sister, not his wife, everyone knew that to tell a lie like that was horrible. That the seventh commandment had been violated, even though yet the ten commandments hadn't been given. And when Genesis is succeeded by Exodus and, and Leviticus, and you see the intense interest that God has in the, the, the kinds of sins, great sins and slighter sins, but all needing uh, sacrifice and atonement. You can just see how God takes sin very seriously. And then Deuteronomy, well, my friends, uh, that's uh, full of a description of what a righteous life should be. So that's the third thing that Paul says why um, the law came in that transgression might about. And then the fourth thing what Paul says about the law is that it is provocative. It provokes sin. You know how this works, don't you? The moment boundaries are laid down, we want to go across them, don't we? There's a little sign saying don't touch. Oh, it says wet paint. Is it really wet? The moment you say to children, don't eat the broccoli. Where's the broccoli? They want to taste the broccoli straight away. 87% of them do. (laughs) Because in a fallen world, once the religious boundaries of God are laid down, there's an inclination of the human heart to get around them. To say, yes, but uh, in this case, surely, this, this is just a white lie. I have to do this for the sake of my children or my wife or whatever. We resent the law of God and we want to bend it. 
in every place. Once you've seen the the law and seen sin and are convicted by it, once you understand that the law is an instrument of conviction, not an instrument of salvation, then you, you have to look somewhere else for deliverance. Okay, that was it. Four points. It was interesting to me. I had help in it and I've flooded it with some of my own insights. The reason you can't be saved by the Mosaic law is it wasn't intended. It wasn't intended to be used for salvation. And then lastly, the last couple, uh, Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Verse 20. And um, I think it's... uh, Oh, well, I read this, you know. I, I read what is perfectly true, that these two words increase are different in the Greek. And it is suggested that the first word increase means addition. And the second time when he says grace increase, it's a word that more frequently is used for multiplication. On the one hand, then, our sins increase one by one. Sin, sin, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins of thought, sins of feeling. Sins in the heart, sins in the eyes, sins in your words, and so on, one by one. But God's grace in Christ, that grace is multiplied over and over and over again. Sins were added one by one. God's grace was multiplied a thousand times. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That's what he is saying. All right, Corrie ten Boom said, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. Oh, please believe that. Make that your conviction and your comfort in life. Here is this blessed principle that in Jesus Christ we have gained more than our Father lost. It's good news. You can't out-sin the grace of God. Some of you have been trying. You've made an enthusiastic attempt to do so. But no, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've been doing. God's grace is greater. Greater than the sin of the prodigal son. Greater than the sin of Saul of Tarsus. Greater than the sins of John Newton. Greater than your sin. Greater than my sin. Greater than the greatest sinner in this congregation or in Aberystwyth tonight. God's grace is greater than the sum total of all our sins for three score years and ten. Never doubt it. Never doubt. When you go to God and you say, I'm sorry, O Lord, for my sins. Please forgive me. That for a moment he hesitates before he answers. Sin abounds, grace much more abounds. I'm saying to you, don't run to your obedience to the good things you've done for salvation because your obedience is the problem. Don't run to your deeds for salvation because your deeds are the problem. Don't run to make a new start in life with new resolutions and new determinations because that is the problem. 
Your will is the problem. Your heart is the problem. You are the problem. Don't run to those things. Run to Jesus Christ who is saying, Come to me and I will give you rest. That's the only place in all the universe, in heaven above and earth beneath, where pardon and forgiveness can be used. It's very comforting, you know, because it teaches us that salvation is by grace alone. And it teaches us this by saying, no sin exceeds God's grace. You hang around some dedicated Christians for a while. They've been Christians a long time. And you scratch a bit. And they chat to you. And you're going to meet a church member. You're going to meet a member of this church. And they, they're saying they're struggling a bit. And they can't let go of something. Because they think that sin is so awful. And they're so ashamed of it. And that it's really beyond. God's grace can't quite reach it. That's what they're thinking. Paul says it's not it's not beyond the reach of God you've got it back to front God's grace is greater than all our sins but Paul you know what I've done well I don't know what you've done Paul will say to us but I know what I did and I weep regularly over what I did And the blasphemy I caused to his blessed name and the hurt I caused to his people. And I want to tell you, the grace of God is greater than all your sin. That's what Paul is saying. You don't run to yourself. You run to grace. You run to Christ. And you find that grace triumphs over sin. Grace always trumps sin. And then he says, sin reigned in death. Verse 21. You understand? uh, you, You still won't say you're a sinner. You're going to die. And death is the wages of sin. You thought you had escaped from the domination of sin. But then you grow sick. And they say there's no hope for you. Every life ends. Everyone in Adam lives in the kingdom of darkness, don't they? That king of darkness over that kingdom, he's ruthless. He doesn't allow one person under his reign to escape death. And that death with all the fearful images of Jesus Christ, that death which is also called in Revelation the second death, Sin reigns in death. And then lastly, grace reigns through righteousness and brings life. That's how it ends, this extraordinary chapter. Verse 21, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are two mountains, all right? And the first is Mount Adam and the second is Mount Christ. And Mount Adam is polluted. It's a mountain that's been polluted by lead mining and fly tipping. And every valley is barren and no fish swim in the waters. And every nook and cranny and lay-by is filled, filled with piles of garbage that stretch towards the sky. The very air stinks. No birds, no bunnies live there. The plants are stunted. 
And those who are in Adam, that's where they live their lives. They live their lives on Mount Adam. With all the evil, rotten things that they've ever done surrounding them. Mount Adam. It has the accumulation of your life. All the rubbish of your life. And every day, Mount Adam's accumulated rubbish grows and grows. It stands so high you can't see over it. It stands so wide you can't walk around it. So deep you can't dig under it. Mount Eden. Mount Adam. It's there between you and God. You are headed for the cosmic incinerator. And then there's another mountain. Oh, what a lovely mountain this is. Just beyond the first one. It's pure and clean and inviting. Its tower is so high. It reaches up to the heavens. You can hardly see the peak of it. It makes Mount Adam like a molehill. And when you compare the two, how insignificant, what a nothing mountain it is. The second mount is Mount Christ. And it towers so high that it makes the garbage of your life disappear. Streams of living water flow from it, tumble down its sides, springing from eternal love, supplying and refreshing all, all who live on Mount Christ. There's a river that flows from it. It makes glad the city of God. That's the message of this whole passage. Christ so great, greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than the creation, great in comparison to God. Christ's grace through righteousness reigns over all his blessed subjects. He keeps them. He clothes them. He takes them home. May you be among them. May you ask God from your heart to number you among those that live on Mount Christ. Lord, bless your word to us tonight. Thank you for teaching us from your holy word. Help us to receive it into our lives and to be changed by its power. God, have mercy on us all. Thank you for the grace given to so many to be delivered from Mount Adam, to live their lives on happy Mount Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.